3: this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Coming up, we'll hear about the Southern Surf Stomp Fest, a free music festival coming to Avondale Estates this Saturday, October 8th. Plus, a listen back to Lois's conversation with comedian and actor David Cross. He'll be performing at the Earl in East Atlanta later this month. But first, the 24th annual Atlanta Celebrates Photography Festival is back in person now. After last year's hybrid schedule, the exhibitions, public art, and artist talks are taking place around the city this time. The festival highlights both emerging and well-established photographers, and recently... City Lights host Lois Reitzes spoke with ACP's executive director Stephanie douda Demere and exhibiting photographer Jess T. Dugan. Demere began by explaining how this year's lineup aims to interconnect parts of Atlanta.
2: Coming from the last two years where we've done predominantly hybrid and virtual programming, this year we wanted to celebrate all the parts of Atlanta as well as make sure that we're highlighting connectivity. So touch points, moments of you know, physical connection. This year, our ACP Festival guide is printed as a broadsheet. So it looks exactly like a newspaper. We have pickup sites all around the city, including Athens, um, and as far as away as Zebulon, Georgia. And working with Just T. Dugan on our large public art project this year allows for us to think about connectivity through the lens of their work and their project. Hmm.
4: How does the festival showcase work of both emerging photographers as well as more established artists
2: Yes, this year we're in our second year of our Emerging Artists Fellowship, which is an annual award that goes to one photographer. In our inaugural year, we worked with Jose Abarrizo, who has gone on to win International Photography Awards, has had more exhibitions, including work up at the Atlanta airport. This year, Jeremiah Thomas is our um, second annual Emerging Artist Fellow and his exhibition just opened on October 1st at Mint Gallery and it'll be on view for the duration of the month. Part of this fellowship is not just to highlight talent and provide professional resources in the city of Atlanta, but to really mentor a working artist who is, you know, really raw and just on the verge of you know really needing that boost in their um, resume and <laughs> their work to complete a project of their own. So we work with Jeremiah, ACP does to give him printing resources, framing resources, professional development, how to install his work. And we've understood that this is a crucial element for photographers to stay in Atlanta and have thriving careers in Atlanta Um, having that initial jumping point from going just from working on their own to really being, you know, having their first solo show through Atlanta Celebrates Photography. The other great thing is because we are a 24-year-old organization, and we've really always done this, we kind of think about what's going on in our society and our world and how we can create programs that speak to a moment. We really understand that working with well-established photographers, such as Jess T. Dugan, to bring them into Atlanta for a lecture, a book signing, a public art, um, really helps us connect with our larger shared community that's not just in Atlanta, but elsewhere. Hmm.
4: And what video work will be included in this year's festival?
2: I'm so excited. I'm new to the organization. I've been the executive director a little bit more than a year. So this is truly the first festival in which I brought my curatorial spirit to the organization, really, and especially now that we're kind of (laughs) maybe approaching another breaking point in COVID, um, allowing us to have a few more in-person elements is really exciting. Um, One of the things that I've been so excited about with photography in general is that it's a medium that not just allows us to produce still images, but um, expanding into video art as well. And I think that's such an amazing emerging connection with video art and photography that ACP is starting to explore. We did this for the first time in our portfolio review over this past spring, we hosted what I think is probably the first video art portfolio review in the country, which was really exciting and allowed us to tap into the network of video artists working in Atlanta. So this year we're working with local artist Mika Fingler to produce a viewable art installation, video art installation, actually at our Grant Park office and The Beacon. This will be launching on October 13th. And so what's great is we have this really beautiful glass uh, garage door (laughs) that Mika will be producing, um, installing a video artwork specific to our space that will be viewable from the outside after dusk.
4: Jess, please tell us about your interest in photographing LGBTQ subjects.
5: Sure. Thanks so much for the question. I have been working as a photographer for close to 20 years now. And my practice also encompasses some video and writing, but I work primarily in portrait photography. And I've always been very interested in working within LGBTQ communities. I identify as both queer and non-binary, and I have for a very long time. And so a lot of my work centers around my own identity, and certainly is made within my own community. And I've always felt really passionate about the importance of representation. I think that seeing yourself represented in the world around you can be incredibly important. It can be a lifeline in some cases, it can validate your identity, it can confirm for you and and let you know that you're not alone, that you're part of a much larger community and group of people. So that's been a driving force in my work over the past 20 years or so. Hmm. Your exhibition, Look at
4: Me Like
5: You Love
4: Me, will be on view at Hyatt-centric Midtown in conjunction with Pride Atlanta. Would you describe this exhibition?
5: Sure, I love the way you say the title, it sounds so poetic. (laughs) Oh, it is a poetic title you came up with. Oh, thank you. Yes, the exhibition that will be on view at the Hyatt-centric Midtown is a selection of work from my most recent book project, which is called Look at Me Like You Love Me. And this project combines portraits, still life images, and narrative texts to really investigate what it means to be a person, what it means to be alive, what it means to embody an identity that is not one that is celebrated in the mainstream, the kind of fight that's required to live that truth. And the book really centers around a balance of, you know, strength and vulnerability and beauty and loss. And there are threads of queerness and gender nonconformity and gender expansiveness throughout. But the book as a whole is about something more universal and, and, and even deeper you know, in putting together this exhibition, we were very mindful of wanting to include photographs of people and couples that were visibly queer, because of course, it's in collaboration with Pride. And we really were excited about having that kind of visibility in such a prominent location. So the photographs will be installed very large on the exterior windows of the hotel. And then we will also have these large five foot by five foot, approximately, photo cubes with additional images from the book and the series. And on these cubes, we will also have some of the text pieces. So bringing in those narrative elements as well. And I'm just really thrilled to have this work in a place that will be so visible during the parade and to be able to bring that to Atlanta with Atlanta Celebrates Photography.
4: It's exciting. Now, most of your photographs are basic portraits, no props or frills, just the subject, and sometimes the subject and their partner embracing. Yes. Jess, why is it especially important to depict intimacy with your subjects?
5: I think for me, on some fundamental level, it's what I'm interested in as a photographer. I'm very interested in how we form relationships with other people, and specifically in how relationships can validate our own internal identities. And I think this is incredibly important within the queer community because our relationships and identities aren't always validated or affirmed more broadly in society. But also I think it's really important in this moment we're living in where we do have more representation of queerness. I think we're moving beyond The kind of representation that just simply says we exist and we're moving into an area where we can make more complicated representations. And I think depicting intimacy and depicting relationship and depicting love is really important and beautiful and life affirming.
4: The works of yours I've seen seem to emphasize tenderness in the intimacy depicted on film. When you bring in elements such as flowers in your work, is that part of your intention?
5: Yes, I love that you feel tenderness in the work because that's a really significant part of my practice, both in how I interact with the people that I photograph. It's very important to me that that experience is respectful and affirming and validating for everyone, but also in what I'm interested in exploring and capturing. And I do think that I'm interested in leaving a lot of entrance points for a viewer. And even though the work in some ways comes from my own identity and in some ways is about queerness, I also want it to be more expansive. And part of that for me is using tenderness, even in the way that I represent people visually. I photograph in soft, natural light. I use shallow depth of fields. My images are very quiet. So I really want to create a, a quiet, tender environment for someone to approach the work and to create a kind of setting where they can experience that tenderness and they can have their own interaction with the person in the photograph. Or even as you mentioned, I have still life images of flowers I want them to have their own experience engaging engaging with that image.
4: And in so doing, is it also a goal you have to improve queer representation in public spaces?
5: Yes, absolutely. So I've worked fairly extensively with art museums, and it's always been a goal of mine to place my work in museum collections because I I want representations of queerness to exist in these kind of public spaces where they'll be seen, where they'll be used in exhibitions and used for teaching. So including my work in, in public space has always been really important. And in the past few years, I have increasingly worked on outdoor exhibitions, which are feeling very exciting to me right now. I love the work being in a community space, in a very democratic space. As much as I love art museums, I'm also really passionate about showing my work outside of art museums because I don't think everyone feels comfortable in that space. Not everyone feels like the museum is a space that they can access. And so I really love bringing my work, especially work that's visibly queer into a very public space and allowing people to interact with it who might not have discovered it otherwise. So I'm really excited in particular about this installation because it will be so highly visible. And of course, it overlaps with the Atlanta Pride Parade, which will go right past the the hotel.
4: Very exciting. Stephanie, in addition to Jess's exhibition, what are a few other highlights of this year's festival?
2: Of course, we are ecstatic to bring Jess to Atlanta, right along 10th Street and Peachtree Street. We, of course, are excited about the opening of Jeremiah Thomas's solo exhibition for the Emerging Artist Fellowship at Mint Gallery, which opened on October 1st and runs through the end of the month. Mika Fingler's video art installation is opening at our Grant Park office in Viewable outside on October 13th. Um, we also have an On the Verge exhibition, which is an extension of our fellowship program this year. We selected five additional photographers from the application pool for a group exhibition, and that opens also at Mint Gallery on October 22nd. And we also worked with Mark Anthony Brown Jr., who is an Atlanta-based photographer who received an Emerging Lens Fellowship from Artworks in Chicago. We partnered with Artworks in Chicago to bring his exhibition of the Forest Cove documentary project that he's been working on for over a year, which is also Open right now at Mint Gallery. They're these really amazing images taken in medium format film photography. They're all darkroom prints, which we don't see a lot of as well. Um, it's the really beautiful and tender. You know, going back to what Justice just was talking about, tender exploration of the families that have been affected by mismanagement of Forest Cove Apartments.
3: Stephanie de Mare, Atlanta Celebrates Photography's Executive Director and Exhibiting Photographer Jess T. Dugan, speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. The festival runs through the end of October at locations throughout our city, and more information is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. In a moment, we'll catch a wave together and hear about the Southern Surf Stomp Fest coming to Avondale Estates this Saturday. Amplifying Atlanta, this is W.A.B.E. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Droves and for Lois Reitzis, great to have you along. The mostly instrumental genre of surf music, created in California by teenagers in the 1960s, has the power to transport us to lands of sun and sand. This Saturday, October 8th, in a land just east of Atlanta, you can catch the vibe at the Southern Surf Stompfest. Now in its seventh year of existence, the free music festival takes place at Little Tree Art Studios in Avondale Estates. Joining me now are the creators of the Southern Surf Stomp, Chad and Jessica Shivers, along with Jamie Galatis of the Mystery Men, one of the eight bands performing on Saturday. Chad, Jessica, and Jamie, welcome to City Lights. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. It was very interesting to me to learn that there just aren't very many surf festivals in the country nowadays. So it feels extra special that there's one in the Atlanta area. Chad, will you start out by telling us how the Surf Stomp came to be?
0: Sure. There's actually a precedent of surf music festivals in Atlanta. There used to be the Clarkston Surf Fest and I believe Jamie had a hand in that as well. And that went away after several years and we had a little bit of a lull. So me and Jamie and some other friends just decided that we wanted to start promoting surf music and putting on concerts. We started doing a monthly show in Oakhurst at Kavarna. And that grew and became the festival. And our first one, it was 2015.
3: We were joking earlier before we got to start the interview, but why so many S's? Why did you name it the Southern Surf Stomp? Just to try to trip us up?
0: No, there used to be a band called the Penetrators. They had this kind of make-believe organization called the Southern Surf Syndicate. Sadly, t- two of the guys are no longer with us, and so to honor them, we decided to go with Southern Surf Stomp Fest.
3: Well, what a great reason to name the festival with so many S's. You are completely <laughs> forgiven for all of the alliteration. So, as mentioned, surf music began in Southern California. When do you think the connection between actual surfing and surf music happened to part ways.
0: I think it was pretty much in 64, 65, when the Beatles hit. That kind of took the gusto out of surf music. And so the surfers were kind of on to other things, and I don't think they've ever really merged since.
3: Jessica, with new people moving to Atlanta all the time, some folks might actually not be familiar with the city of Avondale Estates, which is a pretty unique place in itself. For the unfamiliar, would you describe the area and then also share why you've chosen to call it home for the festival?
6: Yeah, so Avondale Estates, we have a a place there called Little Tree Art Studios. It is an artist community within Avondale Estates. It's pretty centrally located right outside of Atlanta. It's between Stone Mountain and Atlanta. It has this nice little Germanic look to the town very homey uh, it has a large appeal to the artist community very family friendly very also very diverse friendly as well so there's a pretty diverse group of people that live within that community and they're really supportive so We find ourselves enjoying the the festival while we're there because we see so many families, so many different types of people come through the festival, and they share their, their stories with us, why they were drawn to the festival, why they come back every year, and it really is just a very nice home for us. We have really never really looked for another place outside of Avondale Estates for the festival for that reason.
3: Oh, I love hearing you talk about connection and community. And
6: is that why you wanted to make sure it was
3: accessible for all ages?
6: Yes, Uh, we want to actually attend the festival. And as we are getting older, we're having children and our friends are having children and we want them to be able to have a safe environment and inclusive environment for their family to come. So we also say, Hey, bring your, bring your dog too. bring your neighbors, bring your kids, bring your wife, bring your spouse, whoever you want to bring and make it an, an eventful day. We have so many different vendors that they don't just, you know, you would think it was, would be mostly men that come to the festival, but there is a large uh, female population and other that come to the festival as well and we try to get different types of vendors that will appeal to everybody and not just our you know surfy kitsch Mm. kind of
3: you know look let's explore for a second the assumption that it would be mostly men why would you (laughs) say that (laughs) That's a great question for the guys on this call. Because it's mostly men. Because it's mostly men. (laughs) Why are mostly
6: men drawn to surf
7: music? It's a question we've been asking ourselves since forever.
6: Well, it has that hand in frat boy rock too from back in the 50s and 60s, you know, so the guys would get together, they would play shows for themselves, they would invite their girlfriends, you know, over to see them play. So it's mostly guys that enjoy the, the surf music. So from my experience... Chad, are you on board with this explanation?
3: Partially, yeah.
0: But I think that it's changing for the better these days. We have bands like the Surfer Jets, which are huge. I mean, they are just blowing up right now. I saw a picture of them playing for thousands of people recently. They were on the Beach Boys cruise. They're just killing it. Um, they've got you know, millions of views on YouTube. So, And inspiring women and young girls everywhere, I think. And then they're a great
3: band. Oh, I love hearing that. Well, Jamie, you and your band, Mystery Men, and I should say for the record, that's Mystery Men with a question mark at the end. Y'all have been playing surf music for decades now. What originally drew you to the genre? Oh, gosh.
7: Heavy metal, I guess. I was a young heavy metal fan. I was a big fan of Anthrax, and Anthrax did a cover of Pipeline. I read a good cover of Pipeline from the, uh, the old Chante song. And I just happened to have in my dad's record collection "Learn How to Play Guitar" with The Ventures, which had "Pipeline" on it. So it helped me learn how to play guitar, and that's kind of stuck in the back of my head. And then I just I found it through rockabilly years later. Uh, wow! And dug in.
3: Can you tell us a little bit about your songwriting process? Is it a group effort?
7: Uh, absolutely, it is five parts. You, you know, even our drummer has God, he's given us some of our best songs. Everybody has. we will bring an idea in there and we'll just throw it into a hopper and then good old Chad here is our wizard and puts it all together nice.
3: That's great. Well, Jamie, will you share your inspiration behind the song Rubicon?
7: Rubicon, I I wanted to have a happy melody kind of thing. I wanted to have something that was upbeat and kind of had an energy behind it and a dreaminess about it. one of those songs that just kind of popped out of my head in pieces. And then, of course, Chad comes along and puts it all together for us. And we had a part here and a part there. But
2: that, was, that, moved,
7: that song really came about as a desire to express a feeling, a feeling of kind of hope.
3: I love hearing that. Well, Chad, it is absolutely fantastic how many acts you've been able to incorporate into a completely free festival. Can you tell us a little bit about Surfer Joe from Italy?
0: Yes. Surfer Joe is the international ambassador of surf music. He has his own surf music festival. I think it's dormant right now since COVID, but he's also partial owner of Surfy Industries, which makes reverb pedals and other effects that us surf nuts love. And he's a great musician, plays drums, guitar, and just tirelessly working to promote surf music and knows his stuff, knows his history. It's really incredible.
3: How difficult or easy is it to get an international act to play a festival that you're not charging money for? Well,
0: it's difficult in some ways and it's easy in some ways. I think lots of people want to play the festival. So if they are able to kind of partially fund their way here, then they're more inclined to do it. But yeah, I mean, it's difficult because we can't offer them as much money as we would like. So, and that's why we rely on vendors and sponsors and donations.
3: Well, let's talk a little more about that. Jessica, will you share some of the other activities that are going on during the music festival?
6: Yeah. So we have a kids' area. We tend to have a uh, kids' area blocked off in the festival area. It's, it's really informal. It's just a nice little space for the kids to play around. We'll bring chalk and bubbles and other activities for the kids to play. And then we also have 21 artists and, and vendors in our artist market that you can peruse and, and check out while the music's playing in the background. We have food trucks. We will have Sister Rita's. They're right out of Decatur. We have Sweet Sensations, which is soft serve ice cream. He's out of Smyrna in the Kennesaw area. And then bartender on board who is out of Avondale Estates herself. So Tanya is great. She's awesome. So we will have something for everybody. Grab yourself a drink, get yourself a taco, let the kids play around, listen to some surf music. Not to mention there's my parents' basement right at the end of the street as well. So if you need to take a, a minor break from the festival, go sit on their beautiful patio, get yourself refreshed, play some pinball and come back to the festival and enjoy the day. So we have people that come from all over as far as California, Canada, Florida. And I know a lot of people from Florida are, are already kind of up here because of Hurricane Ian as well, but they will tend to make their weekend weekend out of the festival as well so
3: well this is for everyone or anyone would you share your thoughts on the connection between surf music and tiki culture in our country
0: so i always kind of explain it because i'm pretty into tiki as well both jessica and i and and jamie to a certain yeah. extent. so they're both kind of california folk art they're both actually american folk arts From Southern California, I think the surf culture was more of the kids and the tiki culture was more of the adults. The adults, you know, were coming back from the Pacific and the wars and bringing back a little bit of that along with rum was cheap at the time uh, from the Caribbean. And so they kind of made these concoctions from rum and then brought some of these totems and idols and whatnot from the Pacific and that's kind of where that culture developed. So they're kind of, they've overlapped now, but I think they were maybe a little bit more separate
6: oh, in the
3: yeah. 50s, 60s. So for each of you, what's your favorite tea drink?
6: <laughs> I always have to say that the Mai Tai, you know, that's the pretty, pretty much standard. And also I have to uh, give a shout out to Trader Vic's in Atlanta um, as well, because they are our home base too for this event. So um I will be having a Mai Tai the night before at Trader
2: Vic's.
0: <laughs> yeah, we have a pre-party kickoff the night before the Stomp Fest at Trader Vic's and we're going to have three bands and Jamie will actually be DJing as well. That's right. Jamie, what's your favorite Tiki drink?
7: I uh, My favorite is the Black Magic at the Mai Kai and, and Full ordeal
3: Oh, what's in a Black Magic? I don't know that one.
7: I don't know, I think it's got grape juice, and coffee, maybe. Oh. It's just, it's so delicious.
3: All right.
0: I will look it up. Chad, what about you? Mine is a little tiki adjacent, but Mm. a jungle bird. I'm a huge fan of jungle bird. I mean, I love a Mai Tai too, and that's kind of what I'll order when I go into a new bar. But at home, I pretty much make jungle birds more than anything.
3: That's fantastic. Well, guys, to wrap up, Chad and Jessica, this festival has obviously grown a ton from its roots at a little coffee shop in Oakhurst. So if you're dreaming really big, where would you like to see the surf stomp go next?
0: I'd just like to see more people there and... I would like to be able to afford bigger acts, you know, people like the surf surfer jets or low straight jackets or things like that, which we're friends with the low straight jackets guys, but you know, they have a budget that we can't match. But I love it. It's It's a great sense of community. I mean, if it stayed where it was right now, I would be perfectly happy because I think we've done something really special. I agree.
3: Southern Surf Stomp Fest creators Chad and Jessica Shivers along with Jamie Gallatis of the Mystery Men. That's Mystery Men with a question mark. The free surf music festival is this Saturday, October 8th at Little Tree Art Studios in Avondale Estates and more information is on our website wabe.org/citylights. Coming up, we'll catch up with comedian David Cross ahead of his two upcoming shows at the Earl. Amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim droves in for Lois Ritzes. Thank you for being here. Emmy award winner and two-time Grammy award nominee David Cross is an inventive comedian, actor, writer, and producer. He's perhaps most well-known for his role as Tobias on the outstanding TV series Arrested Development, but those who have followed his career know his roots are in stand-up comedy. And he's coming to perform at the Earl in East Atlanta on October 25th and 26th. Cross's latest stand-up special is I'm From the Future, and it's available on his website, officialdavidcross.com. Cross embarked on his comedic journey while attending high school in Georgia. And when he recently joined City Lights host Lois Reitzes via Zoom, he explained his continued connection to Atlanta. I'm there
1: roughly three, four times a year. Everyone except for one sister who's in North Carolina is down there still. I know you went
4: to Northside High School for the Performing Arts Were you already interested in a performing career as a teenager?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I I have credited that school with, amongst other things, potentially saving my life. I was in a very miserable situation in Roswell. I was going to, uh, the school doesn't exist anymore, nor does Northside, but it was called Crestwood. And I was just in a bad state there. And then, you know, I, back then, Roswell was very disconnected from Atlanta. It was, it was its own place, not like it is now. So it was just a different kind of world.
4: Huh. Were there other ways growing up here influenced or informed your work?
1: Oh, sure. I mean, it's all over my earlier work. I was born in Atlanta and when I was one, I moved to Florida. And then when I was about five, I moved up to the Northeast. And then when I was nine, moved back to Georgia and to to Roswell and had no connection with it other than a little kid who's like, this is where I was born. You know, you point to a state on the map and it's like something about peaches, I think. And uh, (laughs) I had never gone back and it was a... Really a massive culture shock for me that never went away, really. I shouldn't say never, certainly in, my, in my, the time I was there until I left when I was 19 to go, I moved to Boston. I mean, I had great, fantastic memories over the years of being there. Made some very good, close friends that I'm still close with today. Was lucky enough to be there and kind of coming of age when the music scene was really burgeoning there uh, between Athens and Atlanta. And I had a fake ID, which was very easy to get back then. (laughs) But I mean, it was still such a, uh, you know, I came from a kind of liberal progressive area where being Jewish wasn't alien. And then I went to this place where I was, I just, I was made to feel very, you know, othered and weird and freakish. And not just, not just the Jewish thing. That was one tiny little part of it. And I have tons and tons of jokes that are, some are anecdotal, some are just observational, but about being who I was in Roswell, Georgia in the, in the 70s and early 80s.
4: You famously played Tobias Funke, the therapist-turned-unemployed actor on Arrested Development. When, when you were first cast for the role, what were some of your impressions of tobias
1: well that's interesting because i wasn't initially they didn't contact me about playing tobias they initially wanted me to look at job and then also buster as well but they were really looking to cast job and i got the script and i already said i I had just moved to new york at the time after nine very long years in uh Los Angeles. And I'd been looking to get out of LA for you know half the time I was there and had just managed to do so. So I wasn't interested in going back. And But a number of people were like, this script is great. Mitch is great. You got to check it out. And Mitch Hurwitz, the creator. Mitch Hurwitz, yeah. And um, who I'd never met before, hadn't even heard of. And I got the script and it's just, I mean, from the very first Word to the last word is just brilliant. And it was, uh, this, you know, the pilot, and it was, and I had no handle on Job. I did not, I couldn't picture it. I didn't know who he was, and and the fact that they so perfectly cast Will Arnett mm-hmm. tells you how how that's who Job is and who Job should be. And I was not that actor, and uh, but I was reading it, and I immediately gravitated towards Tobias who was written as just a recurring guy. It was only going to be there, you know, like six episodes or so. And I immediately had a handle on him and not only knew how I wanted to play it, but really had a strong desire to do it. Like uh, against all the other feelings I had about not going back to LA and not doing a, you know, a potentially long running sitcom. Like I, it was just too good. And then when I did the pilot, I knew, I had to make it known that I think he should be a permanent character and a regular cast member, not reoccurring because I, I, that was part of my deal is I would only do like six episodes because I wanted to be back in New York. And I was like, this is too good. The character is too good. The writing's too good. The cast is amazing. The people, the whole crew was great. And it was just um, you know, one of those things. But I, I, I immediately knew who Tobias was.
4: And so did you and Mitch develop his character more together?
1: Yeah, I called, this is pre-Zoom and internet and all that stuff, or at least that kind of internet. I called Mitch and we had a conference call between Mitch and the directors, Joe and Anthony Russo, the Russo brothers. And, you know, I told them my thoughts and they were all over it. They were all for it. And I, you know, gave them ideas on, you know, he definitely wanted the mustache, definitely you know, had some wardrobe kind of ideas and and basically pitched him as, well, not even basically, this is literally how I pitched him as a kind of a cross between an East Coast, Dick Cavett, turtleneck wearing kind of <laughs> intellectual who goes, hmm, hmm, a lot. And uh, instead of laughing at movies, references just goes, hmm, hmm. hmm. Yes, you know, and a cross between that and a very touchy-feely West Coast Marin, California kind of self-help type of new-agey wellness <laughs> ponytail-wearing guy. So it was like a cross, which are two weird things to cross, but but that's I was like, that's who Tobias is to me.
4: So do strangers on the street yell at you asking for Tobias Lines, or do they yell Tobias Lines at you?
1: Not really. They'll say, Tobias, I'll get that. I'll pass somebody, not so much in New York or L.A., but definitely in, in other places, people go like, Tobias, I- I'll get that, just from a car, and definitely people reference it for sure.
4: Passionate fans of arrested development. Yes. In 2017, you and your wife, Amber Tamblyn, had a baby daughter. Mm -hmm. David, I know in some of your old material, you expressed annoyance (laughs) with friends and family who had kids. In fact, (laughs) the album was called Shut Up Your Bleeping Baby. Has being a father made you revisit some of those takes?
1: Well, I actually literally did an addendum to a joke that I did. It was, shut up you, effing baby. The title isn't suggesting people shut their baby up. (laughs) It's not like that (laughs) final episode of MASH. I have not this last special in which I talk about her as well. And I have plenty of dad jokes, but it's, I think it was two specials ago. I guess she had just been born. So I was doing some material that references and uses the same punchline as the bit where I'm making fun of one of my best friends and writing partners, Bob Odenkirk, doing impression to him with his kids. So I turned it on myself. It's, it's kind of a layered joke that took 20 plus years to finish.
4: <laughs> Speaking of Bob Odenkirk, he's won tremendous acclaim on prestige television mm-hmm. with his performance as Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul, you go back so many years with your comedic work. No doubt you appreciated his sensibility, his comedy early on. Has it been sort of surreal for you to see the heights he's reached as a dramatic actor?
1: Not at all. It's long overdue. I think he showed that capability, even on, on some Mr. Show sketches. And I've mentioned one numerous times, and I'll mention it again, but there's a sketch we did called Prenatal Pageants. And you can see it in that sketch. You can see his the humanity brings to you just a four-minute sketch comedy thing. And it's real, and it's grounded. You really believe that guy. and And I think that's A good example of, and I I feel like this about a lot of comedians, not necessarily stand-up, but comic actors, that they're very, very capable, more than capable of uh, handling dramatic parts. Would
4: you like to do more dramatic roles? You know, depending,
1: sure. I don't think my range is tremendously big. I think I have strengths and weaknesses and things that I can do, parts that I can do. But within those confines, I think I can, I'm sure I can. I did a. I did a dramatic film, little indie film called The Dark Divide a couple of years ago. And, yes. and I had not had that opportunity to do that and not done that ever. And, um, and it was very satisfying. It was hard. It was very hard. But, you know, I, I got really nice notices from that. And uh, I think I, I can watch it without cringing. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, that was an enjoyable, it's not like, the thing I'm most naturally drawn towards, but I, I, depending on the project, and that, yeah, I would absolutely love to. Yeah,
4: it was announced that you and Bob Odenkirk are working on a new show for Paramount Plus called Guru Nation. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us anything about the project?
1: Yeah, it's going to be a limited series, as it was intended to be, and and Bob, you know, we talked about this format that we haven't really done before, which is, you know, telling a story, beginning, middle and end, it ends, that's it, we're not going to try to extend it for numerous series. It's it's a story, we want to tell the story. It's about It's about a, a lot of things, but it's really basically about the kind of cult leaders and gurus and cult personality type of folks, some a little bit more evil and duplicitous than others, some not so. It's kind of told through the through these two kind of straight characters, these ingenues, uh, as it were, this uh, young girl, young boy, I shouldn't say boy, they were like in their 20s, but um, who kind of ping pong through these various cults and these leaders and uh, focusing on two of them, one played by Bob, one played by myself, although we will also do kind of multiple characters through in the story but it will be more grounded than like a typical sketch. We're we're working on making it feel real and also not being overtly judgmental in you know the the question we want to acknowledge is when you watch these Documentaries on, and there's so many of them now. I mean, there's tons of these documentaries of people getting taken by con men, or there's the Tinder, Tinder swindler, and there's the puppet master, and all these things that have just come out on top of all the, you know, the Vow and Keith Raniere and Wild Wild Country and the Source Family. There's tons of them. And you always look at it and you're like, who, how <laughs> the f- do we want to kind of answer that question without making these, you know, judgments on people? And to show that, you know, it, it's been happening forever, and it doesn't matter what language you speak, what era you were born in, culturally, whether what gender you are. It, it doesn't matter. It, you can get taken by you know a con man, whether it's religious based or science based or self help based or whatever it is, or some amalgamation of the, the all of them. It's a real thing. You know, we we're gonna have pretty arch jokes in there because it's too fun not to have them. But we are going to try to sort of show that world, even though it'll be very funny. Like, you should have empathy for the the people that are getting sucked into the cults and not just dismiss them, you know?
4: I'm quoting you here.
1: Uh-oh. <laughs>
4: <laughs> My stand-up is slightly confrontational, a little snotty, a little condescending. David, there's a long tradition of comedians who mine dark depths, shocking topics. Would you talk about where one crosses a line or should stop short with comic irony and cynicism?
1: Well, it's, you know, that's subjective and it's personal. But for me, and I've done a couple jokes that I can't, Defend, other than like I don't know, I thought it was funny, and a couple jokes I have that I wish I hadn't done, you know, I wish weren't out there. But it's when you're kind of beating up on the defenseless. If there's a real victim, that crosses the line, or even a group, you know, a group that's marginalized. To me, that's the line that I would hope one wouldn't cross. But again, it's all subjective, and you know, the best comedy. I find punches up or makes fun of, you know, self-deprecating and you don't need to be cruel.
4: Okay. I'm from the future. The title of your latest stand-up show reminded me that you were in Station Eleven. Mm-hmm. You were part of that series, which was wonderful.
1: Yeah, I I, I loved it. I, I was blown away by it. I, it was a really moving, special, extremely well-done show that, you know, I I came in and did my stuff and I was gone a few days later. So I didn't really know all the other stuff around it, but man, just fantastic.
4: Kim, our senior producer, turned me on to that and I was just blown away. And Danielle Deadweiler, who is Mm Atlanta-based,
1: who played Miranda. Fantastic. She's amazing. I mean, the acting in that thing, uh, I mean, Himesh Patel and David Wilmot. I mean, this just goes on and on. I mean, the kids were just every, everybody. They were fantastic. Yeah, the acting was, the Miranda was astounding.
4: But know? I read that before your first return to stand-up to live post-pandemic, it said you were holed up in Toronto. Yeah. Was that while you were working on Station 11?
1: Well, kind of the opposite. I worked on Station 11 because I was holed up in Toronto. I, I was there, just briefly, I was there because my wife was working on a show that was shooting in Toronto. And once COVID was not going away and getting worse, we realized, oh, the whole family's going to have to move up there. Because there was, initially, we. Were, it was like, oh, this is great. Toronto's like an hour and a half flight from New York. And it's an ensemble show big cast and she's going to have all this time off and just you know fly to toronto for a couple of days fly back and then and then we realized oh we're going to have to move the whole family up there it's and my daughter was well she was 3 at the time turned 4 while she was in toronto and and it, we were it was locked down it wasn't like new york lockdown it was locked down like stay at home orders is what they called it and nothing was open there was delivery of stuff but there was no yeah, you know, there was no outdoor nothing. It was, I mean, it was very deeply depressing and, and hard to deal with, especially with a little kid. So when we realized there was going to be no back and forth and I was going to be there for look like six months, I just called my agents and said, please get me whatever work there or is. <laughs> I'll, I'll do anything. I mean, I'm stuck here because I thought I, I assumed I'll just do stand up it's fine I'll go and and get a, get a residency somewhere I, uh, Toronto's a great city for stand up I've I've recorded an album there even and uh, I always have fun shows when I tour there and uh, I, you know I was like great I'll just do stand up and then I couldn't even do that so I was just like please anything so Station 11 kind of came my way via that request
3: Comedian and actor David Cross, speaking with City Lights host Lois Reitzes. Cross will perform on October 25th and 26th at the Earl. And his new stand-up special, I'm From the Future, can be streamed on his website, officialdavidcross.com. If you didn't get the chance to go to Milan or Paris for Fashion Week, hey, don't fret. You can attend a Fashion Week much closer to home. This year's annual Atlanta Fashion Week is currently underway through Saturday at Underground Atlanta. The lineup spotlights the diverse culture and creativity that Atlanta has to offer in contemporary fashion. There are several runway shows to choose from and moderated discussions with top fashion influencers and designers. The panel discussions are free. All you have to do is register online. More information, including a schedule, is available on atlantafashionweek.co. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Colombian children's musician and educator Natalia Pollies will join us. She'll perform on Saturday, October 8th at the Roswell Cultural Arts Center. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzis. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canady. I'm senior producer Kim Droves, and our team would love to connect with you on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow Lois on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta.